This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hello and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. When Abby Maslin's husband, T.C., didn't make it home on August 18, 2012, she knew something was terribly wrong. Her fears were confirmed when she learned that her husband and the father of their young son had been beaten by three men and left for dead, mere blocks from their home, all for his cell phone and debit card. The days and months that followed were a grueling test of faith as T.C. recovered from a severe traumatic brain injury that left him unable to speak or walk. Abby faced the challenge of caring for and loving a husband who now resembled a stranger. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with Abby Maslin about her unflinchingly honest story of a young love left broken and the resilience required to mend a life and remake a marriage. She tells it all from the caretaker's perspective, and it's really a daring exploration of true love, what it means to love beyond language, beyond abilities, and into the place that reveals who we really are. At the heart of Abby and T.C.'s unique and captivating story are the universal truths that bind us all. It's a tale of living and loving wholeheartedly, learning to heal after profound grief, and choosing joy in the wake of tragedy. And it all starts right after this. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brat, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. I'm in almost every school bus and classroom. I go to school with your children. We say the Pledge of Allegiance together. You see me around the neighborhood, and you tell me that I'm a pretty good kid. Well, I'm one out of every five children in America, and I'm struggling with hunger. This problem is closer than you think. My teacher tells me we can grow up to be whatever we want. I want to grow up to be someone who doesn't go to bed hungry. There's enough food in this country to feed everybody. Please visit feedingamerica.org today and find your local food bank for ways to help. Every dollar you donate helps provide eight meals for kids like me, quietly struggling with hunger. Together, we are Feeding America. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and my guest for this part of today's show is Abby Maslin, who's the author of Love You Hard, a memoir of marriage, brain injury, and reinventing love. Abby, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me on. Why don't you start off with a little bit of a of an explanation of what the story is? Because I mean, the, the the subtitle of the book, the memoir of, of marriage, brain injury, and, and reinventing love gives you a little bit of a hint of what it's going to be, but tell us about the the incident that happened and a little bit of a, of a background, and then we'll get into some of the details, of course, as we go on. Sure. So this is a marriage about memoir, or a memoir about marriage, ostensibly. Um, it's about an event that really transformed my life and my family's life, um, and it began in August 2012. Um, at the time, my husband and I were living in Washington, D.C., I was a public school teacher. I had just turned 30, 
And the weekend before the school year was about to resume, my husband walked to a Nationals baseball game with a group of friends, and he never came home that evening. Um, and, you know, what that set forth was just a series of events that would completely transform everything we thought to be true about our lives. I discovered the next morning, you know, after calling 911 and filing a missing person report that my husband had been assaulted on his short walk home from that baseball game and um, had been hit over the head with a metal baseball bat um, and was left to die on the street. So he was there on that street for about eight hours before a passerby happened to call 911 and, and get him help. Um, and he was very fortunate to receive that help because had he been out there for any longer, he, he certainly wouldn't have made it. Um, but very quickly, this became, you know, an issue or a matter of life and death. I was told that the first 72 hours would be predictive of whether he lived, but that even if he did live, that we would be looking at a very different kind of life, um, that he was likely to be both physically disabled and also cognitively disabled. Um, and so that was a lot to take in at that age where you're kind of in this promising moment of life where you expect that, you know, the future is bright. And if you just keep working hard and making good decisions, you know, you're going to be guaranteed some, some sense of safety. Um, we were parents to an almost two-year-old at that time. And, you know, what, what happened next was a very long rehabilitation that yeah. involved you know, raising a young child at the same time that I was reteaching my husband, um, all of those basic things we take for granted, walking, talking, yeah. reading, writing. Well, yeah. let, let's talk about the, the beginning part of it. I mean, you're, you're the mother of an almost two-year-old. I mean, how do you begin mm-hmm. to explain this to your child, that daddy's not going to be daddy anymore, really? And, I mean, he, he, that, I guess that's more of a long-term thing, but just the Getting, I'm just trying to imagine what it must have been yeah. like. You're getting childcare and and wanting to be there for her, but also needing to be there for your husband. Uh, how did how did you even begin to put your life in order just in the immediate aftermath of this thing? Oh, you know, with a lot of help is the short answer. But you know, I think as parents, we just we we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to give our kids this kind of happy, idyllic childhood without the major upsets that maybe we've lived through ourselves. And so I think at first I felt like we failed him, um, that, you know, he was going to live with this huge traumatic event. And I imagined him getting older and all the questions he might ask and, and, you know, what it would be like for him to have a disabled parent that he was perhaps giving care to as well. It was a lot. I mean, one of the gifts in that he was only two. So, for him, this period, you know, he doesn't remember much of. And, and in terms of, you know, what he remembers about his father, it's interesting. It's very limited. Um, the first time he was able to see TC um, was about six weeks after his assault. So my husband was in the rehabilitation hospital, and I kind of wheeled him out into the courtyard, and our son Jack was waiting for us. And, you know, we captured this moment on video because we were so excited for them to be reunited. They had been talking about each other for for so much of that time. And, of course, you know, Jack didn't recognize him at all. My husband was wearing a helmet to protect 
um, his head from where he had just had multiple brain surgeries. And Jack just ran right past his dad's wheelchair and came directly to me. Um, and so that was an interesting moment because it really illuminated the idea that I was now the sole uh, caregiver to our child, yeah. um, that I had really kind of stepped into that role of a single parent, um, which I would fill for a while. And how do you begin to move forward in the relationship with somebody who's not the person you married? I mean, uh, mm. there, I mean, I can imagine that there's some a sense of obligation and still love that's felt, but yeah. it's not the same person anymore. I mean, how do you, how do you do that? You know, there's this um, term, ambiguous grief, which is often used to describe relationships in which there is a loss but not a death. And that's precisely what this is, because to lose a person's mind is a devastating loss. And it's one that's really not understood well by others because it's not one that we often talk about. And yet anybody who's cared for a parent with Alzheimer's or dementia, you know, has had a similar experience of standing right next to the person that you've loved and relied on for many years, and that person isn't present anymore. Um, so this was an extraordinarily lonely and isolating time in my life and also for TC because he was struggling to be understood as well. Um, and it really forced me to kind of reinvent my idea of what a partnership could look like. Uh, we had mm. had this very kind of wonderful, reliable, ordinary family life before in which the husband took out the trash and I made the social obligations happen and all of <laughs> those kind of little minutiae that, that fill our days. And all of a sudden, he couldn't do those things. And so there was a pressure not only to, to manage our lives, but to still maintain this romantic relationship. What I discovered is that it was really impossible to try to do all of that at once. That what had happened was so catastrophic that it would need to be put together in pieces. And for TC and I, it took about a year before the damage, the collateral damage to our marriage was really evident. And we realized we were going to need to do a lot of healing, not just from the event, but in terms of our identities to, in order to find our way back to one another. And, and a lot of that had to happen individually. He needed to do his own kind of healing um, internally, and I needed to find a, a path for myself. And we were really fortunate that, you know, with time and with commitment and with a lot of hard work that we, we found ourselves, you know, back together in this relationship. But it it's a choice. And partnership of any kind, even without the catastrophes, is a challenging a challenging thing to manage. And so we think of it as, as a day-to-day -day choice that we make in our lives that requires mm -hmm. effort. And take us back just a little bit to his recovery. So he was, for a while at least anyway, nonverbal, right? Has he yeah, regained yeah. the ability to speak now? It's, it's been seven oh, years, yeah. right? He's had a remarkable recovery. He went from not being able to say my name. I remember one day he called me 17, and I was thrilled because that was just a real word. Um, you know, he he had to relearn the alphabet. He had to relearn everything. Um, you know, it, it was clear at the beginning he wasn't going to go back to work, and I 
you know, at the time he had been an energy analyst, um, so he was doing a lot of mathematical modeling and forecasting and things that were completely out of my wheelhouse. So even if I had wanted to teach him those skills, I wouldn't have been able to. Um, but he had a lot of speech therapy, and, and part of that speech therapy involved us going to Nova Scotia, Canada, in fact, um, for an entire summer so that he could receive um, some very specialized treatment there in terms of speech recovery. Um, but he's an incredibly tenacious man. So when he came home from that experience in Canada, he designed his days around doing all of the speech activities that he had learned uh, in Canada and was able to return to work two and a half years after his injury, which was really remarkable. Speaking with Abby Maslin, who's the author of Love You Hard, a memoir of marriage, brain injury, and reinventing love. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're talking to Abby. We want to get into some of the details more about the recovery and the parenting and the relationships and how all of that changes in the, in the face of very significant changes in the in a relationship, completely unexpected. I'm Armin Brandt, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brandt, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. You must be your fairy godmother. Yes. It doesn't take a fairy godmother to tell you that the right fit means everything. Good heavens, child. You can't go in that. Children under four foot nine need to be in a booster seat because they aren't ready for adult safety belts alone. Many parents miss the important step of booster seats. Maybe you better explain things to him. Booster seats raise your child up so that a safety belt designed for adults will fit and protect them properly. Oh. That does make a difference. Remember that four foot nine is the magic number. And get your little pumpkin there safely <laughs> in a booster seat. Hop in, my dear. Oh, thank you. And like Cinderella, you can live happily ever after. It's like a dream. A wonderful dream come true. For more information, visit boosterseat.gov. This has been a message from the U.S. Department of Transportation and the Ad Council. Ever notice when you have a baby... Everyone seems to give you advice. From your mother-in-law, don't you know you can't take that baby out in the rain today? And where is her hat? To your own parents. You should take the baby outside every day, even in the rain. To your friends. You have got to get this diaper cream. It is so much better than the one you've been using. When it comes to the important stuff, like immunizations and protecting my baby's health, I trust my baby's doctor. She really listens to my questions about shots, she gives me great information, and she works with me to make sure my baby gets protected. And that's something even my mother-in-law can agree with. Honey, I totally support you getting the baby vaccinated, but really, shouldn't you put the baby's hat back on? A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, talking with Abby Maslin, who's the author of Love You Hard, a memoir of marriage, brain injury, and reinventing love. Um, I want to get back to this idea. I, I think I just probably have developed since reading the book uh, a morbid curiosity about these things. And I'm sure a lot of people do just imagining how would I possibly function? Mm -hmm. How would how would you make this? And it's, of course, you can't make a plan for it. But right. When you said it took a, a year before the 
the damage that had been done to your relationship really became evident. Was yeah. there was there a point where you felt that you were staying in the relationship out of obligation as opposed to out of love? Absolutely. I was, you know, I was filled with guilt um, because I did love this man and he didn't choose what happened to him. And yet I had nobody to understand me in the relationship. I was of, of service to everyone else, but there was nobody who could take care of me. And and as much as I tried to make that feeling go away, it just didn't. Um, and so that became, you know, a very fraught moment of, of life, wondering if I could stay in this relationship for decades longer, knowing that we were very young when this happened. Um, part of what allowed me to move forward from that moment was a commitment to doing more exploration about who I was and, and how I looked at others to fill my, my own needs. Um, and I was really fortunate because I was able to take a month to do a yoga training um, in Greece, actually. And, you know, that was a moment after two years of, of giving care to not only my husband and my son, but to both my parents who were also ill at the time. Okay. And, you know, what, one of the epiphanies that I had there is that in a marriage, you know, we often go into it or enter that, that relationship thinking that that one person is there to fill our every need. And that is an enormous burden, an enormous pressure to put on anybody, um, healthy or otherwise. And what I was going to have to do um, was figure out a way to make my life bigger, to let in love from others, to allow friendships to satisfy some of my my desire to be seen and my desire to be heard and listened to, um, that in order to stay, I was going to have to look at TC and authentically love who he was now in acceptance of all of the things that had become difficult for him. And that was difficult in a way, but truly when I got an up-close look, I saw a man who had fought for his life in an incredibly inspiring manner. He never saw himself as a victim of this assault. He really saw this as a mountain that he had to climb, and he just did, and he got up every day and worked at it. And if there is anything more attractive than that in the world, I'm not sure what it is. <laughs> so it, do you grieve the loss of the TC who was as, at the same time as you're falling in love with the TC who now is? Yeah, and that is part of the complexity of this experience and this kind of ambiguous grief. Um, and I still am. There are miss the sound of his voice as it used to be or the way he might have responded to something because I had to learn a new person. And, and you know, in, in, in fairness, he was also learning a new person because I emerged from this very different as well. I, you know, I really snapped snapped awake to my life. Uh, I had been kind of on autopilot. You know, I, I could see that in, in retrospect. But this sense of life is urgent and I have work to do and I can be more than I was yesterday. I mean, these are the principles that kind of guide my life today. And so I've become a completely new person as well. Now, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about yeah. the forgiveness aspect of this. I thought it was interesting you talk about in the book about forgiveness being staying alive. And mm -hmm. it's another one of these things I, I um, try to imagine whether I would be capable of forgiving somebody who did some horrible thing to a member of my family. And I, mm -hmm. I'm not sure I'm quite as, as much of a mensch, I guess is the word, mm -hmm. as, as you are in this. Can, to describe how 
you came in contact with the other person uh, and and how you managed to move past that and not let that drag you into some pit somewhere. Well, it really dragged myself into the pit at many moments. You know, there were three young men who were responsible for TC's assault, and I had a lot of anger, um, a lot of anger, and was forced to sit in courtrooms with these young men as the legal proceedings began to take place. And I just felt full of rage. At the same time, I, I knew, because I'm a public school teacher, and these were young men, I, I could see something them that, that felt familiar, kids I had known, kids they could be. I knew that they had made a terrible choice. And I knew that for me to try to keep this work of, you know, um, being TC's wife and his caregiver, to continue on and keep my focus in that area meant that I, I didn't have to devote myself right away to the idea of forgiving them, but that temporarily, at least, forgiveness could be this decision to keep living, to not let these people and their actions control my decisions as a result, um, because anger is convenient, um, but it hardens us. I felt myself getting hard at very, you know, many moments along this process where I felt like love is too difficult because it breaks you. The world is unsafe, so I'm going to hide. You know, this is what this is what it felt like to not be living forgiveness. Um, mm. To come to a place where I can say that I do not forgive those actions, but I see the humanity in the people who perform those actions, and I have come to accept the circumstances, the outcome of those actions. Um, that allows me to walk through the world with grace yeah. again, and I and I have to choose because. I don't want to spend my life being angry. I, I won't give one more thing away to this assault. And that was certainly true um, three years into this journey when TC and I were deciding whether or not to have another child. Um, because for, for years I had grieved this idea that our, our family was now complete and it, and it hadn't felt complete. We had wanted to have another child. Um, but that was a really scary thought with a partner who had just kind of come out of this long rehabilitation, and, yeah. and we were just beginning to feel stable again. Um, but the idea of not doing it, of, of living in fear, felt like that was an opposition to everything I had come to know and believe in. And so we welcomed our daughter, Rosalie, into the world, you know, almost four years after TC's assault. And... Um, and, and she's been a remarkable kind of, uh, I would say, like, mile, milestone in, in this decision to just keep on the path of life yeah. and, and to live with light. And how is it for the kids to have a, a dad yeah. who's not like other dads? Yeah, I, I, I can't say that it's easy because it's not. Um, there are difficult moments. There are ways that they have learn to navigate around some of his challenges. I think if anybody met TC, they might not know right away that, that he had some specific challenges. But one of the things that can be hard for him is receptive language, which means that oftentimes, you know, you're telling him something and he doesn't quite understand what you're saying. And so you have to repeat it or say it in a different way. Well, that's hard when you're an impatient, you know, seven-year-old. and You just want what you want in that moment, you know. So the kids have had to learn um, – some strategies for for working with TC's, um, you know, challenges. It's also made them incredibly empathetic, though. They, you know, my, my son especially, because he just turned eight, he walks around the world now and he sees things that 
other kids might not notice. He sees moments of suffering. He sees people who are different, and he responds with a level of empathy and um, acceptance and a desire to to be a, a good, you know, a force for good. Um, it, it feels very kind of old-spirited and old-soulish for mm. a kid who's still very young. So I think it's really, it's aged him, and it, it's really made him more responsive to people around him. Yeah. We only have just a minute, but I speculate a little bit. I would imagine this is hard to get a real fix on, but how do you think the TC sees his his life at this point? You know, we live with such gratitude, and, and I am speaking for TC when I say that, because he feels, even with all the things that are challenging, and, and sometimes they're just small things, like, you know, he doesn't have the use of one arm, so he's unloading the dishwasher with one hand. So these small things, but they're frustrating on a daily basis, and at the same time, he's filled with such immense gratitude that he just gets to have this life, that he has this family, um, that he gets to go to work, you know, that he has this job. You know, it, it's really an appreciation for all of the small things, all the small moments that make up our days. Abby Maslin is the author of Love You Hard, a memoir of marriage, brain injury, and reinventing love. Abby, thank you so much for coming on. It's great to have you. You're so welcome. Thank you again for having me. Hands can do incredible things. This is the sound of 326 hands playing Mozart. This is the sound of 10,942 hands showing appreciation. 64 hands building a house for the homeless. 142 hands swimming a triathlon. 18 hands winning the big game. And this is the sound of two hands helping to save a life. It's called hands-only CPR, and it's recommended by the American Heart Association. If an adult suddenly collapses, call 911, then push hard and fast in the center of their chest until help arrives. It's incredibly easy and effective. Hands can do incredible things, but nothing compares to using them to help save a life. Find out more about this latest method of CPR at handsonlycpr.org. A message from the American Heart Association and the Ad Council. Hey there, welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and it's time for a Parents at Play segment. Just because the kids are about to head back to school here in a week or two doesn't mean that you should stop with the summer reading, because reading should be going on year-round, right? And here are a couple of great books that should help keep them busy indoors, and it's hot in a lot of places, and so they're going to be spending more time than usual indoors anyway. Most Marshmallows by Rowboat Watkins. Let's be honest. Most marshmallows get eaten. That's pretty much the extent of their short, sweet, to the eater anyway, life. Or is it? Maybe they go to school to learn to be squishy. Maybe they have goals and hopes and dreams just like we do. Maybe all they want is to be extraordinary. After reading this book, you may never look at a marshmallow the same way again. It's for ages five and up. I'm a Baked Potato by Elise Primavera and Juana Medina. Names have consequences, or at least they do for a dog whose human has named him Baked Potato. A fun book that will get you and the kids thinking about the difference between names we were given, the names we call ourselves, and the names that others call us. It's for ages four and up. Good Night, Starry Night by Julie Appel and Amy Guglielmo. 
An obvious takeoff on the classic Goodnight Moon, this clever book combines the soothing rhythm of a lullaby with some fun and equally classic pieces of art, including those by Vincent van Gogh, Diego Rivera, Bert Morisot, and others. There's even some additional adults-only biographical info at the end. It's for ages three and up and those who read to them. The Big Green Book by Robert Graves and Maurice Sendak. We didn't realize quite how much we've missed Maurice Sendak until we read this delightful book about a little boy who discovers a book of magic and uses it to confuse and confound his poor old aunt and uncle. The tale itself is wonderful, but Sendak's illustrations, as always, add a whole new element. It's for ages eight and up. Chapter Two is Missing by Josh Lieb and Kevin Connell. Typos are part of life, and most of us have learned to live with occasional missing letters or words. But what if an entire chapter disappears, or one from a completely different book shows up unannounced? What about if all the punctuation of the book goes on strike and shows up wherever it wants to? There's only one way to find out. It's for ages six and up. Sorry, grown-ups, you can't go to school by Christina Geist and Tim Bowers. In a lot of places, school's just about to start, and sometimes it sounds so fun that everyone, mom, dad, grandma, and grandpa, and even the dog, wants to come too. But hang on a minute. Like it or not, school is only for kids and teachers. Or at least that's what the author claims. Take a look. It's for ages five and up. Goodbye, friend. Hello, friend. By Corey Dorfield. School is a time of transitions, and few transitions are bigger than moving to a new school and having to make new friends. This bittersweet book explores the challenges of saying goodbye to old friends and hello to new ones, the sadness of loss, and the joys of discovering what tomorrow will bring. It's for ages five and up. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.